I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and he made an interesting observation. He said, you know, when you get up to preach this Sunday, you're going to be talking to people that have spent hour upon hour upon hour listening to the world's message. They're going to have everybody from advertisement to television to radio to programming to any aspect of society telling them, just think about yourself. And you need 30 to 35 minutes to tell them to think about something other than themselves. And so what I'm going to ask you for this morning is you've given the world about 25 hours this week of watching television and listening to radio. So since you've given the world 25 hours, I'm going to ask you this morning to give God 35 minutes. I think that's fair for us to hear what God has to say to us. Now, before we go there, before we go to Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2, I've got to tell you about something that happened this week because it it applies to where we've been in the last uh, 25 minutes. I was walking through one of the local businesses here. My wife can't take me anywhere. And uh, I was walking through one of the local businesses. I'm minding my own business. Got on my blue jeans, my shirt tails out. I'm trying to just not be, you know, I I don't wear a label on me or anything else. And I mean, from, from about as far to the end of this section right here, all of a sudden I hear this voice. Hey, Mr. Sherwood, Pastor Sherwood, Sherwood number one. <laughs> I'm going, did they open the, the nut house? What in the world is? And so I, I just kind of waved and went out. I have no clue who this guy was. Mr. Sherwood, number one. So I said, okay, i got to go over and talk to this guy. So I walk over there, shake hands, and said, hi, I'm Michael Catt. And he never tells me who he is. I love these people. You know, they're, they're anonymous weirdos. Uh, <laughs> and, and he says, uh, he says y'all, y'all had this group at your church one time. Uh, uh, what was their name? Uh, uh, Faith? I said, we've never had a group named Faith at our church. Uh, it's some biblical word. It was uh, hope. I said, we've never had a group named Hope at our church. I said, are you talking about truth? Oh, yeah, that's it, truth. He said, now, boy, they did praise and worship, and they sang and got excited. He said, how come y'all don't do that? I said, pardon me? He said, he said all y'all do is your minister, you'll love this. Your minister of music stands there behind that pulpit and just kind of waves his arm, and y'all sing those draggy funeral kind of hymns. He said, why don't y'all do anything exciting at that church? I said, who have you been watching? He said, well, y'all just don't ever get excited. Your ministry music doesn't look excited. and you, 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 Everybody looks just like you're singing at a funeral or something. And I said, well, I beg to differ with you. He said, I said, first of all, there's nothing wrong with singing hymns, and we sing them every week. I said, but we don't sing them like we're in a dirge. We sing them like we're excited about our faith. And I said, and we do songs written by people who are in truth. And we did, in fact, this morning, we did songs written by five different people. And three of them in three different churches. And and so I said, we do all kinds of stuff. He said, no, y'all really don't. He said, y'all just need to kind of loosen up a little bit. And what I wanted to say to him, said, no, you need to go in the hospital and let them put you on Demerol. (laughs) That being said, I just want you to quit standing behind the pulpit and just waving your arm and just kind of loosen up a little bit, Mark. And just, you know, kind of of get freed up a little bit. 
Anybody wear that tie is loose. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1. I got to get to the message. Oh, I got to tell you, while you're turning there, we're, Terry and I are walking to check out, and he yells. And of course, now people in this store are like going, he yells out, Oh, no, go ahead. Let Sherwood one and the first lady go ahead and go ahead of me. Y'all just go on up ahead of me in the line. I went to see Andy this week to ask him what it would take for me to be able to legally carry a gun. <laughs> the Christian life is a radical life. And it is a life that is opposite of the way the world thinks. Jesus says if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You have to give it away. That you have to die to live. The Scripture says for me to live is Christ. If we want to live, we take up our cross daily and follow Him. And that we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. That we're supposed to turn the other cheek and be faithful unto death so that God can give us the crown of life. When we come to the book of Philippians, we find a church that is on the early days of persecution. Opposition is beginning to rise and things are beginning to happen. And yet you see not a message on caving into the culture, but on having courage in the face of opposition. Look, if you would, at verses 27 through 29. Because what you have here is unity and courage in the faith of, face of opposition. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's unity. With one mind striving together. That's unity. For the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents. That's courage, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to also suffer for His name. The first thing we want to look at is a mind fit for battle. In verse 27, Paul is like a commanding officer giving his troops their assignment as they are facing the battles of life. It is a general exhortation. That word conduct is a present active imperative. It's the way we are supposed to act, how a citizen of heaven is supposed to live as a citizen on earth. And the whole book of Philippians is written from this perspective, that we are citizens of heaven assigned a task to live on earth until the Lord takes us home. And how are we supposed to live in that time frame? How are we supposed to act? We are to conduct ourselves in certain ways. And so Paul, as a commanding officer, gives his soldiers instructions for success. The first thing he says is that we are to stand firm. Now by stand firm, and there are several words to write by these three phrases. By the word stand firm, you need to write, this is your defensive position. In other words, don't give up ground to the enemy. Don't be in a retreat mode. Don't give way. 
Don't quake and run. Stand firm. He uses this also in chapter 4 and verse 1. In fact, eight times in Paul's letters, he says that we are to stand firm. It implies, the word implies opposition. That somebody is trying to knock you off balance. That somebody's trying to get you to lose your footing. And so he says, when that opposition comes, plant your feet solidly so that you're ready for the attack so that you're ready for the opposition, so that you're ready for the blows that the enemy is going to give to you, you plant yourself solidly in the ground and don't budge. We will not give up this line. There's a line that military officers often use. We will hold the line at all costs. That's what Paul is saying here. We are to hold the line, to stand firm. That is our defensive position. But then he gives us striving together. That's our offensive position. Our offensive position is striving together. Why? Because we cannot fight this battle alone. We have been called to fight a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we cannot sit this one out because the lives of our families and our children and our future are at stake. And so in standing firm, we strive together like those Roman soldiers would march chain to chain, arm to arm, shield to shield, locked together, marching together in a line to take over the ground that the enemy had. This is offensive. We don't just hold the position. We take the ground that God's told us to take. It is an offensive position for us. And the reason that we don't take ground in the church today is because we are dabbling at everything and dedicated to nothing. We are called to strive together. That means what you do is important to what I do. And what I do adds value to what you do. That we are in this battle together. None of us are fighting this battle in isolation. None of us are lone soldiers on a hill trying to defend it. We are all marching. We are all moving. We are all a part of an army to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then thirdly, he says, that we would not be alarmed. That's your mindset. That's your mindset. Now, the picture here, one of the pictures of this word is of a startled horse. What Paul is saying is don't be spooked. Don't be startled like a horse that's been startled and bucks and takes off and just starts running wildly. Stand your ground, stay together, and don't let anything rattle your cage. Don't be spooked. Don't be scared. Don't be shocked. Not alarmed by anything that could possibly cause you to panic and to be bewildered. You and I are to cause to be calm, to not be panicked, regardless of where you are politically and uh, where, what your positions are, uh, re- really doesn't matter. But, uh, but I, I can remember on 9-11, uh, our staff was at uh, Enjoy with uh, John Maxwell, and we were taping a session there. They did a session with our staff with some, about 10 people from a college in the area uh, on leadership. And in the middle of that taping, the, the planes began to hit the Twin Towers. And when I left Enjoy that day, I, I, I will always remember that day. I'll always remember what I was doing and where I was that day. It's kind of like when Kennedy was shot. You always remember those moments in your life. 
And I distinctly remember getting into John Maxwell's car, and, and he turned to me and he said, well, we'll find out what kind of leader George Bush is by how he handles a crisis. You see, you don't go into panic mode. You go into strategy mode. What are we going to do? What do we need to do? And what do we need to do now? A horse will panic. It is up to the rider to keep it from panicking and to control it. And Paul is saying we need to be under control in this time of opposition, in this time of crisis. Now, the second thing is that there's a life fit for service, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Not only a mind fit for battle, but a life fit for service. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that he's told us to stand firm, that we're to strive together, that we're to not be alarmed, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, you can know in the next 15 seconds if you are living a life fit for service. The verses 1 through 4 of Philippians chapter 2 describe you on a daily basis. That is the life fit for service. That's how we know that we can be used by God if we have these characteristics. You see, as long as we buy into the culture and buy into the thinking of today that it's what happens to me and it's what I get to do and it's what I want and what I like, and if we're not others-centered, then we have not learned to be fit for the life of service because ultimately our service will be about I'm going to give so I can get. I'm going to serve so that you will serve me. It will not be the heart of Christ. And so the way we know if we have a life fit for service is our attitude. And by the way, your attitude is more important than which gift you have or what talent you have or how successful you've been or what your failures have been. Your attitude makes you what you are. Life is about 90% attitude and 10% what happens to you. How you and I respond to it. Chuck Swindoll says, we need to take a long look in our short lives and determine our attitude. And so Paul gives us a spiritual motivation for this service that we are called to that will please God. First of all, is the basis of the appeal is found in verses 1 and 2. The basis of the appeal is in verses 1 and 2. And there are four ifs. Now, the best way to translate that word if is if and there is. If there is any consolation, and there is. If there is any fellowship in the Spirit, and there is. Or you could translate it since. Since there is fellowship in the Spirit, since there is consolation of love. And he gives us these four evidences of joy in what we do and how we do it. The key is encouragement in Christ. Do we have encouragement in Christ? Yes, we do. Consolation of love, fellowship in the Spirit, affection and compassion. 
If those things are there, and they are for us as believers, then we need to build on that foundation as we think about how we serve other people and how we serve the Lord. That's the basis of the appeal. Then there's the attitude that's required in verses 3 and 4. And there are four attitudes that he mentions that are pleasing to God. When I was in youth ministry, we used to do a thing, and we used to do this in youth rallies. We'd say, attitude check, and people would stand up and say, praise the Lord. Man, if you did an attitude check with some Christians, you'd hear more than you wanted to hear. And I'm not talking about praise. This is the attitude that pleases God. Look at it. Being of the same mind. Now, that would wipe out most churches right there because not everybody's on the same page. There are all kinds of agendas in churches. Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Oh, that'd be good for a church to do, wouldn't it? If we're striving together, it would be good for us to maintain the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now he uses in verse 3 the word humility. And humility is the opposite of a competitive spirit. If we have a competitive spirit, what am I going to get? Do I get to win? That we don't have humility. I love the way Warren Wiersbe defines humility. He says, humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. You ever met anybody say, I'm just so humble. (laughs) I'm just so humble. The humble person never tells you he is. You just know they are. Humility is a characteristic that God sees that He wants in us so that we can have this kind of preference attitude for the things of God and deference to others. You see, it's important to have both, that I prefer what God prefers and I defer to others so that there might be oneness and unity and love in the body of Christ. In other words, I don't have to get my way to be happy. Everything doesn't have to be according to my agenda to be satisfied in my relationship with the Lord. And then he gives us the keys to the attitude of service, and there are four. Key number one is selflessness. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Now, what did Christ do? And we're going to look at that at the end of the message, but Christ emptied himself. He laid aside not his deity, but his glory and the aspects of his glory to come and walk among men as a God-man. He emptied himself. He forfeited his rights and his riches. We're trying to claim our rights and claim our riches, and we're trying to see how much we can get and how much we can accumulate and who stepped on my turf and who did this to me, and we're lawsuit crazy. And in this kind of society, Jesus says, empty yourself. Forfeit your rights. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Do good to others who do bad to you. A selfless mentality. Do nothing out of selfishness. Don't do anything to be noticed, to try to get attention, to make sure that people applaud you or recognize your accomplishments. That word selfishness is actually the context of a group attitude. We are to be, not be selfish like 
The world is selfish. In chapter 1 and verse 17, he talks about that selfishness as a characteristic of those who are opposing him in the ministry. In chapter 5 and verse 20 of Ephesians, he talks about it as a characteristic of the flesh. I'm sorry, Galatians. He talks about it as a characteristic of the flesh. What Paul is saying is when we are selfish, we are fleshly. And the church has too much selfishness in it today. What are you going to do for me? And not enough selflessness in it. What can I do for you? I'm doing some reading right now on what's happened in the church in the last 50 to 60 years. And it's amazing how the number of volunteers have gone down in church because people decide that they don't want to invest in the church. They would rather invest in other things. Be selfless. That's what Paul says. Then he, he says to be a servant. The word servanthood is in verse 4. Don't just look out for yourselves. And, and he uses two phrases here. Now, selfishness and empty conceit are two sides of the same coin. He talks about don't be selfish. Now in verse 4, he, he mentions don't have this empty conceit. Conceit That's glorying in what others say. Being puffed up. So impressed with your introduction. Amazed that people don't recognize your accomplishments. Wanting to be acknowledged on a continual basis. That's empty conceit because sooner or later it's gone. Sooner or later it's over. Empty conceit and selfishness is, is that wanting glory from others. And I, I love what William Booth said when he was too sick to go speak at a conference. And he was asked if there was a message that he could send to this conference of people in the Salvation Army. And he sent a one-word message, others. That is our message, others. How do I avoid selfishness and how do I avoid empty conceit? By being focused on others and by obeying what God says. You see, we're called to be servants. Now, I've never been a servant, I've never had a servant, but I, if I read history and I study the Bible on the characteristics of servants, I can tell you two things about servants, maybe more. They're not high maintenance. They demand little recognition or applause, if any. They just do their job. The church is full of high-maintenance people. They always got to have your time, always got to have your ear, always want to spend your time telling you their problems and their issues and their struggles and their trials. And I'm not talking about people that are... I'm talking about every time you see them. Let me tell you why the church is full of high-maintenance people. It is full of high-maintenance people because it's full of people who don't serve others and get their focus off of themselves. You show me somebody that's high maintenance and a needy person, and nine times out of ten, I will show you somebody that never volunteers to serve anywhere, that never volunteers to do anything for anybody else. Their number one agenda is every day, somewhere during that day, what's the church going to do for me? Never, what can I do for the church? You'd be like the lady in one church It says, 
hey, I change diapers all week. I'm not about to go to the church and volunteer one Sunday to do it there. Well, somebody's volunteering to do it for you. And one day those kids are going to grow up and they're going to have kids. I wonder if you want those kind of attitudes in the church that your kids go to and take their kids to. That doesn't seem quite biblical, does it? Certainly not New Testament and it's certainly not Jesus. I'll tell you this, if Jesus was alive today, he'd change diapers. And he'd work security. And he'd greet. And he would serve. Because he came to earth as a servant. He said, if you want to be somebody, don't pad your resume. Be a servant. Be a servant. If you want to be somebody, you be a servant. Because the greatest people are the servants. You see, God always turns it upside down from the way we think it really is. Then he says that we're to have sacrifice. Christ willingly laid down his life. And so we're to have a life of sacrifice. That's a lifestyle. That's not just something I do one time, one week, if I get coerced and if I get begged, but this is a lifestyle for us of sacrifice. And then finally, sovereignty. Because Jesus is reigning and because Jesus is ruling and because God has highly exalted him, we are servants under his sovereignty. Now, what do we need to remember to be united under the sovereignty of God and united in service? First of all, we need to remember that Jesus prayed for us to have unity. John chapter 17. You realize that any church or any Christian that's working against the unity of the church is working against the very prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I do anything, if I say anything that undermines the unity of this church, then in essence what I'm doing is saying, Lord, I am running in opposition to what you prayed that was so important that the night before your death, this is what you were focused on. The unity of the church. Why? Because the power of the witness of the church comes in its unity. Secondly, Jesus died to bring us to God. Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, chapter 2. And then thirdly, the church is the bride and the body of Christ. The church is the bride and the body of Christ. And the unconditional love of God motivates us to end divisions and walk in the Spirit. I'll tell you, the next time you hear of a church or you have a fellow Christian who is in a church and they're talking about fighting, here's the one statement that you can bring up to them. If the church is the body and bride of Christ, then the unconditional love of God should motivate you to end divisions in that church. Well, I don't think there... It doesn't matter. Who's going to die to themselves and be a servant so that the body can have a witness in the community? Because I can tell you, every drunk in every town knows every church that's fighting. They do. They know it. They know every church is having problems. And the worst thing the church can do is to get into a party and a petty spirit. Now here's my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I don't think that Sherwood will ever decay and decline because of heresy. I don't think heresy will ever get a foothold in the door of this church. But I can tell you this, that every minute of every day, 
the devil will work to try to find somebody in this body who can create disunity and factions and friction and cliques. And a church can be destroyed by disunity quicker than it can be destroyed by heresy. You and I are soldiers in the army of building the unity of the body of Christ because it was important enough for Christ to pray about it. It's important enough for us to do something about it. Right? Now, I'm not hearing a lot of amens, and we're a pretty united church, but I'm not hearing a lot of amens. Let me ask you, would you rather be in a church that's like this, that's united, or would you rather go to one that every month is having a business meeting where people are leaving mad and cussing each other in the parking lot? Which one do you want to go to? Which one do you want to go to? You want to go to one where people are fighting and don't talk to each other in the hallways? Or you want to go where you're greeted when you walk in the building? I mean, which one do you want to go to? Well, I can tell you, there are dozens of them around. If you want to fight, you better check your faith. Because a person of faith is only fighting one thing, and that's the devil. They're not fighting other believers. And you and I have been called to build up and to defend the unity of the body of Christ. Now here's Paul's concern. The church is now in its third generation. If you go back and read from Genesis all the way through the history of Israel, you will find a pattern in the nation of Israel for what happens to God's people when they don't stay focused on the sovereignty of God and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Here's what happens. The first generation has convictions. I mean, they've got convictions. This generation's been delivered from Egypt. Uh, and even though they wavered along the way, they, they had convictions. And then the second generation that comes along, they haven't had these dramatic experiences. They weren't there at the Red Sea. But they've heard about the Red Sea. And so they have beliefs. The first generation lives on convictions. They will live and die on convictions. The second generation, they have beliefs and they're glad that their parents or their grandparents or whoever had those experiences because they believe strongly about those things. The third generation has opinions that can be changed based on influence. When the pagan tribes came in, when Israel did not drive out the pagan nations and the nations that worshipped idolatry, then it began to infiltrate and they began to intermarry and they began to fellowship and they began to build bridges of relationships rather than being God's unique people. And so they had opinions and those opinions began to change. And Well, it won't matter if we just allow one idol over here. After all, it's just a piece of wood. It's just an idol. It doesn't make any difference. And then there were two and then there were five and then the hills were filled with idolatry. And then the fourth generation moves to apostasy. The fourth generation moves to apostasy. We are as a church in the third generation. If we don't have convictions, then all we're ultimately going to have is a group of people with opinions. And churches with opinions don't make an impact. Churches with convictions make an impact. Now let me just tell you how this has affected us. Fifteen years ago, when I came here, if I'd made some of the statements that I made last Sunday about the gay agenda and the homosexual agenda and some of the other things, I would have been continuously interrupted by people clapping. 
there was enough of a pause this past Sunday, and I don't say those kind of things to get applause, but there was enough of a pause to let me know that there were many of you in this room last week who thought for a second before you started clapping because you didn't know if that was the correct thing to do, to stand for a conviction. You weren't sure it would be right for you to applaud that because that might offend somebody. Well, let me tell you something. The Ten Commandments offends the majority of Americans, but God's not going to change them because it's offensive to people. The Word of God is offensive. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and we just want everybody to just sit around and meditate on our navels and get along. Folks, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And just the fact in 15 years with all the preaching we've heard, with our prayer ministry, with everything else we've got going for us, that it was even a hesitant thought in your mind that we ought to support things that are fighting the wave of culture moving against us is an awareness to me that we're not paying attention to what's going on around us. What's happening in the culture around us? What's influencing us subtly? Because you can't listen to television. You can't watch Friends and Will and Grace and everything else over and over and over again and not begin to soften your position on what God says about homosexuality. You'll do it. You'll just do it. And it'll be a natural outgrowth of the culture influencing you. My oldest daughter has a, has a friend who's in New York City. He's come out of the closet. She says he's the most unhappy person she's ever met in her life. From when she met him four years ago, when he wasn't practicing homosexuality. See, the word gay is an oxymoron. The average heterosexual in America will have 10 partners in their lifetime. That's the average heterosexual in America. You're only supposed to have one, but the average will have 10. The average homosexual in America will have 1,000 partners in their lifetime. Now, if you've got to go through that many people, you're not a happy person. You dress in colorful clothes, you can prance around all you want to, but I'm going to tell you, you're not a happy person. If you've got to go from person to person to person to person to person to person to person looking for satisfaction. That's the world we live in. That's the battle we're called to fight. And we better be careful that we don't lose our convictions and they slip to just beliefs and then that just becomes opinions and all of a sudden we're apostate as a church, or as a nation. Number four, three, number three, the example that motivates us. You know this. This is a familiar passage, Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Keep on having this mind, he says in verse 5. What mind? 
the mind that empties itself of self and lays aside self for a cross. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, we see Christ's selfless actions. How do I know if I have the mind of Christ? My actions are selfless. Verse 7, we see Christ's servant heart. How do I know if I have the mind of Christ? I have a servant heart. I'm willing to give of myself. In verse 8, we see Christ's sacrificial offering. How do I know if I have the mind of Christ? I have a sacrificial spirit. I'm willing to go the second mile. I'm willing to do that which costs me, that I may never get anything back in return. How do I know I have the mind of Christ? It is I am looking forward to the glorious exaltation of Christ. That's number four. The glorious exaltation of Christ. There's going to come a day when He is going to have every knee bow. That word exalted means hyper-exalted or elevated to the highest of all places and given the name that is the highest of all names. One day, every knee, every tongue, every tribe is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will not be a confession of salvation. That will be a confession of subjugation that Jesus was who He said He was. And He is who He says He is. And there will be an acknowledgement from the devil and his demons and the lost in hell that Jesus is Lord. That the devil was wrong, that the demons misled, that the world sold us lies, and that the only truth was Jesus Christ. There will be that acknowledgement. We can either do it now, or we will have to do it then. The mind of Christ in the Christian is simply this. Under God's sovereignty as my Lord, I am surrendered to Him as His servant. He surrendered His glory so that He could become a servant, so that I could be saved, and so that I could become a servant for His glory. That's why He came. Father, I ask You in Jesus' name today that You would help us to have Your mind. Lord, this culture has begun to bombard us. It has a wicked agenda. And if our eyes are open and our minds are in tune with your word and our ears are open to what your spirit is saying to the churches, we must be servants who give of ourselves sacrificially, not demanding for ourselves but submitting ourselves so that you might reign and rule through our lives and be salt and earth in us and through us. Lord, we will, every one of us in this room will either bend a knee now or we will be driven to our knees then. I choose, Father, to bow before you now as Lord because of love, because of grace, because of your goodness. Father, make us the kind of church that strives together and stands firm and is not startled 
the church that remembers that we are intent on one purpose in the unity of the Spirit. Lord, I thank you that we're a good church. I thank you that for many, in many ways, this is a problem-free church. But God, I know that the enemy hates that. And he's seeking to deceive and destroy and divide. Make us individually and collectively people who are committed to the unity of the body. To servant hearts for the Savior. And to doing all we do and taking all the stands we take. So that the church might be to the glory of God who loved us enough to send His Son to die for us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your time as God's Spirit has spoken to your heart and convicted you that there's an emptiness inside of you and there is sin that cannot be forgiven apart from the grace of God. This is your moment to respond.